Hi, this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. With the passage of the 1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package, the U.S. federal government will have a monumental task of accounting for how and where the money is spent. As head of the Government Accountability Office, Controller General Gene Dodaro will be responsible for overseeing how taxpayer dollars are spent and provide objective, nonpartisan, fact-based analysis. In this episode of the Financial Executive Podcast, we revisit our most recent forward-thinking interview series with Controller Dodaro, where he discusses his role as the nation's top financial watchdog. Hello, I'm Dave Araldine, Managing Director for our Strategic Accounts and Government Industry Practice. I'd like to welcome you to FEI's Forward Thinking series and today's session on the growing role of the federal government. Robert Half and Protivity, a wholly owned subsidiary of Robert Half, are pr- proud to be sponsors of the year-long Forward Thinking series. As providers of talent and consulting solutions, our goals are to help all companies and leaders face the challenges of the future. With the passage of the recent American Rescue Plan Act, as well as other stimulus packages, the U.S. federal government now has a monumental task of accounting for how the funds are allocated. As head of the Government Accountability Office, Comptroller General Gene Dodaro will be responsible for ensuring that taxpayers' money is spent wisely and provide objective, nonpartisan, fact-based analysis. As you listen in, we hope you garner key takeaways as to how the decisions made by the GAO may impact your business. Please enjoy today's discussion. Now I'll pass it over to Chris Westfall. Thank you. Thanks very much. And uh, I want to thank Robert Half and Protivity for, for sponsoring this series. And I want to thank Controller General Dodaro for joining us today. Um, it's uh, going to be a great conversation. We also want to be an interactive conversation. So uh, as we go forward and have the discussion, um, I encourage you to um, have your questions put into the uh, question box and we'll try to get to as many as possible. Um, just as we uh, go over um, Controller Dodaro's background, he's been um, uh, with the uh, GAO for a number of years, has spent the last several years as Controller General, um, appointed by uh, President Obama, um, and has, and I'm not going to go down the complete paragraphs here, you can read it um, uh, for yourselves, but uh, as you can see, it's been a a very busy and um, important time for the GAO, GAO, I can't even say it sometimes. So it's going to be a very interesting discussion simply because of the fact of the number of of issues that uh, Controller Jadara has had to deal with over the past decade. did a little discuss, I did a little background on you, but maybe you can sort of discuss, you know, share some of your background and your path, you know, where to your current position as Controller General. Sure. I, I came to the uh, United States that then was the General Accounting Office, now the Government Accountability Office. Uh, in 1973, fresh out of college with an uh, accounting degree. Uh, Watergate hearings are underway. It was uh, interesting then. It's still interesting now. Uh, By 1985, I had gone into the senior executive service and was responsible for doing management reviews. At that time, we looked at an entire department agency. So I did the Department of Justice, the Internal Revenue Service, uh, the Office of Management, Budget, and the Executive Office of the President, the Office of Personnel Management. And uh, then by 1989, I was asked to go into the Accounting and Financial Management Division at GAO to be the Director of Operations. And then the very next year, the Chief Financial Officers Act passed in 1990. Now, this is something that GAO had been working on for well over a decade to try to get Congress to establish chief financial officers in each of the major departments and agencies of the federal government to require the preparation of financial statements and having independent uh, audits done on a regular basis. We had gone through 200 years of our history without having these fundamental practices in place. And so I helped build our capacity at GAO to carry on our responsibilities here. 
And by uh, 1993, uh, I was the Assistant Controller General for the Accounting and Information Tech, uh, Management Division at GAO. We had merged our Accounting and Information Technology Divisions at that time. So I helped establish the Chief Financial Officer structure throughout the government uh, and work with the Inspectors General to put the federal government under a regular audit regime. GAO's responsibilities were to audit the consolidated financial statements of the federal government beginning with fiscal year 1997. And so we did that. Uh, and that was the first ever audit of uh, the financial statements of our federal government in our nation's history. Uh, during that time, I also helped alert the government to the problems with the Y2K computing challenge. Uh, in 1997, I designated computer security as a high-risk area across the entire federal government. Uh, and I worked with the Congress to put in place chief information officers in all the major departments and agencies in the, in the government. And then in 1999, I was asked to become the chief operating officer for GAO, which is the second in command uh, position at the agency, uh, along with uh, David Walker, who was the controller general at the time, asked me to take the job. We reorganized the GAO completely, established new strategic plans, uh, revamped a number of our uh, uh, protocols for working with the Congress and the agencies. And uh, then uh, Dave left early in his term. As Controller General, you serve a 15-year term. Uh, Dave uh, uh, was uh, left early. He wanted to focus more on the federal government's uh, fiscal position and speak out more than he was appropriate in the Controller General job. And so he asked me to become Acting Controller General, which I did in March 2008. Now, this audience knows that was about the time the global financial crisis started, uh, and I was quickly immersed in that. And with the federal government's rescue efforts and the Troubled Asset Relief Program, GAO had a report every 60 days. So I worked uh, with the Treasury Department, tried to get them that up and running, and we audited that effort. We audited the American Rescue Plan. It was a stimulus plan at that time. And so, uh, but then I, I applied for the Comptroller General position. It's unique in government in that the process starts with a 10-member congressional commission of all the leaders of both parties and both chambers of Congress. And so all 10 members have to agree on three or more names to go to the White House. The president then picks off of that list, then you have to be confirmed by the Senate. Uh, and then once you're confirmed by the Senate, you have a 15-year uh, non-renewable term, which my wife is pleased about. And, uh, <laughs> and then uh, you can only be removed uh, by the Congress through impeachment. You cannot be removed uh, by the president. And so it's a rather unique position. It's one of the longest appointments in the government, you know, aside from judges. And... Um, so that was sort of my path to GAO. I happened to be the first career person to ever be selected uh, for the job. Typically, it had been people coming from the private sector or another part right. of government. I mean, you've gone through so much, uh, you know, like you said, the financial crisis and now the pandemic, um, the, the efforts around, you know, CFOs within the, within the government. Um, what, how, I mean, how has the role of the Controller General changed um, during your service in government from, from a broader perspective? Yeah, GAO is very much, is very uh, uh, evolved. This is our 100 year celebration of GAO. So it's our centennial celebration. And GAO was created in 1921 following World War One because there was concern about the debt that the country had accrued during that period of time. There was no regular budgeting process. And so uh, the Bureau of the Budget and the Executive Branch, which is now the Office of Management Budget, was created. And GAO was created in the Legislative Branch in order to audit the expenditures of the, 
the executive branch and and files for the payments and that uh stayed in place through world war ii then as the government grew and become more involved that function was devolved to the executive branch agencies and geo became more of a classic financial auditing function at that time not under uh, preparation of statements and audits but you know auditing the finances of the agencies their financial operations uh, but then in the 1960s with the war on poverty and the um, great society programs government grew exponentially and GAO was asked to look at the evaluation of the programs that were created were they meeting their objectives was the government efficient and effective what needed to be done and so we became more known for what we're known for today which is performance audits so about 10 percent of what we do is still classic financial auditing uh, but the vast majority of what we do 90 percent are performance audits and i've also been evolving us uh, to work more in the science and technology area i created a science technology uh, assessment analytics group you know we're asked to review weapon systems at dod satellite systems nasa systems everything across the full breadth and scope of the federal government uh, and so we need to have more highly skilled people in the scientific area we're doing work now for example looking at the use of artificial intelligence by dod and other agencies developing a framework on how to audit algorithms uh unused uh, in the artificial intelligence area quantum computing infectious disease modeling and so we're really gao has become a very multidisciplinary professional services organization we have 3200 people almost every discipline you can think about and uh we work in a in a multidisciplinary fashion on all of our uh audits uh, and engagements. And, and so the, the role of GAO has changed as the country's needs have changed and things have become uh, more, uh, uh, you know, difficult uh, to deal with. And so we're, uh, you know, very much continuing to adapt and to uh, grow as the, the, the country's needs do. You know, that brings up one question I have in my mind is, um, you know, one thing that we continually talk about on the private sector side is the comp competition for talent, you know, getting the right people in the right places. How do you deal that w with that from a government perspective? And are you feeling the same pressure? Well, it's always difficult when you have the type of uh, difficult assignments that we're given uh, to have the right kind of people. Uh, but I feel very good about uh, our ability to attract and retain people. You know, our attrition rates uh, you know, had been uh, only 6%, and uh, lately it's gone below that. I think last year is closer to 4 or 3%. Hmm. And so, uh, and we can regularly attract the type of talent. Now, we have uh, an interesting mission. It's a compelling mission. You have a chance to make a difference in almost every national issue that the, the country is dealing with, GAO is involved. You'd be hard pressed to name one that we're not involved in. And uh, so we uh, have that mission. Uh, we have good uh, foundational areas. You know, even though we work in a political environment, we're a nonpartisan organization. We're governed by professional standards and core values. And so you can work on interesting issues in a nonpolitical fashion even though you have right. to be aware of your environment, obviously. Uh, and, uh, and then we have a good work-life balance uh, at GAO. And we've been regularly named one of the best places to work in the federal government by the Partnership for Public Service. Uh, over, it's been that we've been, had that ranking, fortunately, on every year that I've been uh, Controller General. Uh, so uh, I feel very good about that. Now, you know, we can't compete in a lot of the salary areas, but we have these right. other advantages that that help us, you know, attract and retain people. And so uh, it's it's always, Chris, you're going to have uh, challenges in that regard. And, you know, we're going through the same thing a lot of organizations are going through now with the retirement or the baby boom generation. 
So succession planning is important, and we have a very robust succession planning effort in GAO. You know, I've probably replaced half of our senior executives in the last five years, but our performance is maintained and continues to, to enhance. I, I want to uh, get one to one question, a very specific question for our audience, uh, you know, when we have the time is, um, and this is, is regarding the PPP uh, program. How is the IRS and SBA being evaluated with regard to employee retention credits and PPL forgiveness, given the unprecedented volume of funding or refunding? Yeah. Yeah. Go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish, please. No, that's it. That's that's the question. Oh, OK. Yeah, we're looking at that now. GAO has been responsible for uh, looking at the use of all the trillions of dollars that have been appropriated. We provide monthly briefings to the Congress. We provide um, bimonthly reports to the public. Uh, and to the Congress. So we've issued six of those. We've made over 70 recommendations. I actually added the uh, PPP program, Paycheck Protection Program, to our list of highest risk areas across the federal government with our update to our high risk list, which we keep and update every two years at the beginning of each new Congress. We've done a good job you know, getting the money out quickly, but they, they didn't have very good controls in place. And I've been... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, concerned that they haven't made very quick mid course corrections to increase transparency and accountability over those funds. Now, there are some complications right now that we're looking at and evaluating concerning the loan forgiveness applications and the employee tax credit issues. And we'll be having some recommendations in that area forthcoming. But I, I, I'm not at liberty to discuss them yet since we haven't uh, vetted them with the agencies. But though, the, there's issues there that uh, we believe we'll be making some recommendations to hopefully uh, provide greater clarity uh, in that guidance. Great. Yeah, I want to take a step back and, and go a little broader right now. It's like, Many of our members are controllers from and financial executives from private enterprise. From where you sit, how is it similar or different? How is your role similar or different to theirs, or is there any difference? Well, uh, there's there's great deal of similarities. Obviously, we're responsible for managing finances that are central to the success of our organizations. Now, success is measured measured differently in the private sector versus the government uh, sector, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, profits uh, aren't aren't an issue in the government, but making lives of people better uh, is a measure of success or achieving the objectives that the government set out to do now under the the pandemic with improving public health, stabilizing the economy, et cetera. So those things are different, but we're you're still dealing with large finances, uh, you know, of the, of the federal government, managing the debt issues, uh, trying to provide the best value for cost. You know, I've spent a lot of time trying to get the government, though, to have better cost information to measure the performance of programs, uh, there's still a long way to go uh, to be able to be put in a position to do the type of those type of evaluations that are done in the private sector. We study a lot of the commercial practices in the private sector uh, to, to then have them applied as appropriate in the government settings. Now, the one thing that it's very different in the government is the government is into businesses that aren't attractive uh, to be uh, taken up by the private sector. You know, they're just not profitable businesses. A lot of the lending that the government does is lending a last resort or lending to, uh, you know, people uh, who uh, may not have the full ability to repay uh, initially or where there's a, a, a gap that the private sector hasn't filled. Uh, you know, a big change occurred during the global financial crisis uh, in the mortgage area. You know, about right. 70% of mortgages right now are either directly or indirectly guaranteed by the government versus the private sector because there was a, 
you know, pulling back there during the global financial crisis. And Fannie and Freddie uh, are still in government conservatorship. And I've been right. trying to push to get them uh, in a more permanent status. That's on our list of high risk areas, too. Uh, but so so, the you know, that those things are different. But at, at the foundation, you're, you're dealing with some of the fundamental same type of decisions that need to be made and, you know, regarding the financing that's pivotal to the success of our respective organizations. Yeah, those are important points. I think what we'll do is we'll go to our next polling question, Giovanni, and, and this will sort of go into a conversation going forward. So um, the polling question is, do you feel the federal government should be run more like a business? So uh, it's the yes or no question. We'll give another minute. So obviously the majority of respondents say, yes, it should be run like a business. So given that, you know, a common observation is that government should be run like a business. You know, it's something that's been said for a number of years. Uh, how does that make sense to you and where do you think it falls apart? In, in, yeah. Um, yeah, well, there, there's, uh, you know, it, it should be done in using good business practices where, where appropriate and necessary. Okay. But I mean, where it falls apart is, you know, no business would go into national defense and and, mm -hmm. and make things that would or need to be made to protect our national defense area. Uh, you know, there's a lot of contractors involved in supply, providing support uh, to the defense uh, industries, uh, but some of those investments were, uh, you know, a, a, a really good example here, Chris, is where is, is the Postal Service. Now, the Postal mm -hmm. Service was created as a special government corporation. It used to be a federal agency, and it was supposed to be run like a business. But right now, and has been for several years, uh, first-class mail uh, volume has plummeted. Uh, right. They haven't been able to meet all their obligations, and their financial model is broken. Now, if you're totally left the private sector devices, you know, they'd be closing post offices, they'd be cutting back service, they'd be raising fees, they'd be, you know, but none of those things are that acceptable if you want to maintain the reason they're in business is universal service provided, uh, particularly in a lot of rural areas. And so you have a public interest. And sometimes the mm -hmm. public interest is, is deemed more important than, uh, you know, the dollars and cents. Uh, associated with that, but eventually somebody has to pay for it. Uh, no business could could have done what the government did in the um, in this pandemic. You know, and to come up with trillions of dollars uh, to uh, provide all the assistance that's done. You know, in this case, to a lot of private sector businesses, or depending on the government. You know, I was involved in the loans that were given to the automakers during the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so when businesses, private sector businesses, their business model doesn't work for whatever reasons, 9-11, the airline industries, pandemic now has affected so many businesses. You know, people turn to the government for help and the government can do things that no private sector business either could do or would do if you followed, you know, right. standard. Uh, business models on on you know profit versus loss on those things, but clearly there are things that the government should do that uh, are uh, similar to private sector good management practices where it's appropriate. I have to ask you, um, you know, like we said before, you've been through so many crises, you know, from the federal government perspective and financial, you know, financial crisis of 2008, um, you know, the current uh, COVID crisis. I, I know it's a difficult question to answer, but what do you think was was the most challenging from your 
from the GAO and from your, your perspective? Yeah, well, they each had their own unique uh, challenges. I mean, the, uh, the uh, global financial crisis, uh, you know, I remember when you know, Chairman Bernanke and Secretary Paulson went to the Congress and said, we need, you know, $700 billion right away. Uh, credit markets are frozen. We need to uh, you know, unfreeze this. People can't get credit. Banks wouldn't even lend to banks during that period of time. So there was a sense of urgency with that. The same thing's true on COVID. Now, the, the COVID crisis, the pandemic crisis, is really unique because it affected all sectors immediately. Right. You know, a lot of these, I was involved in the savings and loan crisis back in the you know, mm-hmm. late 80s, and the banking and the 90s, and uh, uh, there's been other, you know, infectious disease outbreaks you know, before, but rarely have we had a public health emergency of a global proportion and the economic repercussions rippling across every sector uh, of, of our economy. Uh, so in that respect, the most, the latest crisis is the most uh, severe that, that I've seen right. and challenging. And I think uh, we deserve, you know, all the frontline workers in our country, the public health workers, the government people at all levels of government, private sector and others who have stepped up. You know, we've seen some of the best of human behavior right now. And unfortunately, we've seen some of the worst, too, with a lot of people, right. uh, you know, exploiting the, these programs with fraud and other other areas. Uh, we've, we've seen our scientists uh, who are among the best in the world come through for us. I mean, it's hard to imagine how we'd still be struggling with this without the vaccines. Now, we've done work on the vaccines. We looked at the development and manufacturing against best practices from a technology development standpoint. And what was done was remarkable. And normally, previously, it would take 10 to 15 years to develop vaccines. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't cut any technical corners. They just did things, uh, you know, sequentially rather, or or excuse me, um, uh, concomitantly rather than sequentially and and the government stepped in and funded all this I mean uh, uh, there's no no private sector firm would have put the, the upfront money right. to, to do this so it was a great partnership between the government and the private sector and our medical professions that have led us to have some you know glimmers of hope now of of coming out of this uh, pandemic. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been a, you know, a, a real challenge right now. And, and we got off to a rocky start with this whole thing mm-hmm. and, uh, we've come a long way in our country. And I, I deal with, I was just on a, a call yesterday. I deal with my counterparts around the world. Uh, we have an organization of 195 countries, national audit offices, and I've been trying to help some of them. The ones in the developed countries are, you know, in pretty good shape. They could do remote work and everything. Um, but also, um, you know, the uh, uh, there are many that, that don't have those capabilities right. in the developing countries. So we've been trying to help them. But I'm also trying to work with international organizations. Part of the issue, the biggest challenge I have in my job is getting people to take actions before things become a crisis proportion. In 2015, we had a recommendation to our Department of Transportation that they create a a national aviation safety plan for communicable diseases. So here we were, Mm -hmm. 20, 25 years later, pandemic hits, no plan. Uh, They say it's not our job, it's Department of Health and Human Services or Department of Homeland Security. They're saying, no, it's the airlines. So, And we need to have an international set of norms there as well uh, if we want to deal with the same thing with cybersecurity. You know, as I mentioned, I designated that in 1997 in 2000 for federal information systems. In 2003, I designated uh, critical infrastructure protection, high risk, electricity grid, the uh, you know, financial markets, the communication systems, etc. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and only recently, when you have these problems like the pipeline problem we just had, 
and and other issues that people take action. So, so uh, they always say, never waste a good crisis. So I, I'm, I'm yeah. resurrecting some of these recommendations we've made before. Hopefully, they'll get implemented. Yeah, and, and I wanted to follow up on that. I mean, looking at your your background and your tenure at, at the GAO, I mean, a lot of your focus has been on IT security, digital initiatives. Um, what do you think are your biggest um, achievements in that? And, and what is your biggest concern about government IT security going forward? Uh, well, the biggest concern clearly is still the uh, large amount of legacy systems that we have. You know, we have systems still running some critical functions in the government that are decades old. Uh, and they were designed at a time when security wasn't a preeminent concern at all. Right. And it's, it's just not information systems. You know, I've pointed out at GAO, we've done work to point out there's not enough attention in the development of new weapon systems. And you know, industrial control systems, mm -hmm. you know, for the grid and other things. And so, you know, because you make yourself vulnerable uh, to attacks uh, by state and non-state actors in this regard. You know, when, uh, you know, if you want to invade a country years ago in the past, you'd have to physically go there to cause problems with transportation and communication that you try to cut off right away. Now you could not leave your own country and cause havoc mm -hmm. in another country. And so th this is a this is my biggest worry, Chris. Now we've had a, a lot of success. Recently we, we recommended to the Congress that they create a national cybersecurity coordinator in, in the White House because it's my view and the view of GAO that you need to have greater public-private sector uh, cooperation. Right now, the concern I have is that there's a lot of intelligence about what's going on, but it's compartmentalized. There's not enough sharing. It reminds me of what happened before 9-11, when a lot yeah. of the intelligence agencies had information, but they weren't sharing it uh, with one another to put together the big picture, to look at vulnerabilities and assessments. And I think that can only be done with national federal leadership in that area. And while the intelligence and defense industries are, are, always have to play a critical role in this whole thing, uh, you, you need to have a, a, a more cooperative public-private exchange of information on a regular basis if you're ever going to get ahead of this. My concern has been the government's not and the private sector is not operating at a pace commensurate with the evolving grave threats in the cybersecurity area. And we have hundreds of recommendations to the agencies that haven't been implemented yet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, the government really doesn't know what the readiness is of many critical infrastructure uh, sectors in the economy, particularly those that they don't have a regulatory focus on. So these are there's plenty to be concerned about in in that area, and I uh, my my concern is that we're underestimating uh, the potential vulnerability there. Great. So that I think that's important because that leads into our next question, uh, our polling question for our audience. So, Giovanni, if we could go to our next question. How would you describe your concern regarding government IT security? And there's three choices, not concerned, concerned, or a great concern. And we'll give you a minute to answer. So obviously, the, the you know, there's nobody who's not concerned, hardly anybody who's not concerned about it. But um, you know, obviously, the, the majority is, is great concern. Um, I want to get a couple uh, audience questions in. Um, and this sort of leads into what we we're just talking about is like, so this asks, do you anticipate an increase in the staffing and resources at the GA to address the increased workload? I've, I've uh, put forth uh, proposals uh, for in increased uh, staffing at the GAO. I was very pleased in taking on our uh, coronavirus responsibilities, Congress collectively through the various laws appropriated to additional $107 million for us to carry out those opportunities. So I've been able to hire uh, some additional people. I want to expand our uh, uh, 
staffing in the science and technology area in healthcare, which is our fastest growing cost at federal government and then the defense and cybersecurity areas. And so I've asked for some additional resources. Now, the, the challenge here is that, uh, you know, uh, the federal government, based on GAO reports, CBO and others, and the financial report of the federal government issued by the Treasury Department, you know, basically says the federal government's on a long-term unsustainable fiscal path. Uh, with the debt to GDP ratio. So the competition for resources is key. And uh, so, but I'm making the case, uh, you know, our recommendations, 77% of our recommendations are adopted uh, on a regular basis uh, over a four-year period of time. Our average return on investment in terms of financial benefits to the government's $165 for every dollar invested in GAO over the last five years. So we, we, mm-hmm. we have a great return on investment. We got a great story to tell, uh, but it's just the competition for resources. And particularly we're in the legislative branch appropriation, which is the smallest appropriation across the government. And right now right. with the January 6th attack on the Capitol and others are security issues and other issues that you're competing with. So, but I'm, the bottom line is, Chris, I'm trying uh, <laughs> to, to get the resources we need. And Congress has been generally receptive, but hmm. it's, 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 a, it's a big uh, struggle, and it will be. So the other side of the coin, and, and it's something that the GAO works a lot on, is government waste. You know, during your tenure, what have the big... Do you think I've been the biggest surprises and challenges as it, when it comes to government waste? Yeah, there's uh, several areas. One, there's, I'll give you the first one I'll give you is what I call wasted opportunity. Right mm-hmm. now, the gap between taxes owed and taxes collected on our normal tax structure is $380 billion a year. That's the last estimate that was made. Now, the IRS commissioners come out and say he thinks it's much higher than that with cryptocurrencies and other uh, right. other activities going on. That hasn't been up there. They're due to update the tax gap coming up. So we have a lot of revenue that should be coming into the government that's not. Now, on the other side, you have over $200 billion last year in improper payments that were made. These are payments that shouldn't have been made or were made in the wrong amounts or whatever. And and a lot of, so we got money going out the door that shouldn't be going out the door. And a lot of that's in Medicare, Medicaid in particular, earned income tax credits. And uh, I've got some laws passed to try to deal with that issue. That number is not a complete number either. I mean, I, there's some programs yeah. that aren't measuring this. So we got a we got a payment problem uh, of a magnitude that wouldn't be tolerated, I believe, in the private sector. So that's uh, that's the, that's an area of time. And the biggest surprise to me is I've been trying for several years to get legislation passed to require the Social Security Administration to give a full death master file to the fiscal service and the Treasury Department so we don't pay deceased people. Now, I never thought it would be so hard <laughs> to get a law passed to not pay dead people. Uh, you know, and, and so, you know, I mean, I, I just, you know, so that's been the biggest surprise to me and, and part of the frustration. But Congress did pass it finally mm-hmm. uh, this past year. You know, a lot of the first stimulus checks under the CARES Act, about $1.1 billion went out to deceased individuals, and one, one of which included wow. my own deceased mother. Uh, oh, wow. My, my sister got the check and, and, you know, and, you know, we obviously she yeah. also sent it back. So we ultimately, you know, recommended the IRS to get that money back. They got a they got a big chunk of it back, but, you know, over 700 million of the one point one billion. Uh, right. So but in any event, you know, you have the largest one, of the largest enterprises in the world. You're going to have issues, so we're constantly working on this, and and there is steady progress in a number of areas. That's why we have the financial benefits that we we do in return on investment. So I, I focused on some of the biggest outstanding issues, but there there's a lot of success stories too. Yeah, those are some amazing stories. 
I want to um, first get the last polling question before we just focus on um, uh, member Q&A. Uh, so if we could bring up this. Uh, so this is sort of on our audience to get their f- uh, focus on it. What would you leave? Would you leave the private sector to serve in a comparable government finance position? So would you would you take up uh, being a controller in a private company to work in government in a similar role? So I think, you know, maybe it's compensation, <laughs> maybe it's lifestyle. <laughs> I'm majority say no, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I would say um, your country needs you. And <laughs> at some point in your careers, maybe when you retire, to spend a few yeah. years in public service. I just recently, uh, there was a, a gentleman who had been a major partner in a public accounting firm and came in and to a CFO position in a major agency. And, uh, you know, he told me it was one of the best things he ever did. And, uh, he made a big difference in a few years. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, uh I w- don't rule it out guys uh, and ladies. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, uh, uh, it's important and, uh, you'll find a lot of job satisfaction with it. You know, compensation can't compare but the job satisfaction goes a long way. Yeah, we have a very active uh, retired uh, membership and uh, I'm certainly, I think they'll be hearing that message. I wanted to get a couple questions from the audience as uh, we, we hit the final uh, 10 or 15 minutes of the, the conversation. Um, this is coming from a, a member of the audience. Um, can you speak to how to you apply a risk matrix, yeah, risk matrix to the process of transaction cycles and how that may differ significantly from the private sector? Yeah, well, I think it, it depends on the different federal programs and activities that you have. But we have, I said, the Controller General sets internal control standards for the federal government. So when they're based a, a lot on the COSO standards and, and somewhat uh, adapted uh, to, the, to the government environment, that's in place and agencies have to follow those internal control standards. They're implemented through the uh, executive branch uh, guidance through the Office of Management Budget, but the standards are set by GAO and of course risk management, as you know, is a big part of the COSO standards. Now, um, you know, when you have activities like the COVID emergency relief fund or there's a hurricane disaster or some other uh, natural disasters or wildfires or whatever, you know, we try to get people to uh, focus on having a few, uh, you know, screening for potential fraud and other activities Mm -hmm. and risk. What are your risks up front? But oftentimes that gets out, outweighed about getting the emergency assistance out. So there's always this tussle between getting the money out quickly to not, you know, denying anybody right. a need uh, and uh, and having these uh, activities. Now, I got uh, Congress to pass some legislation back in 2015. It's called the Fraud Reduction and Data Analytics Act, and it requires agencies to have a systematic uh, risk evaluation of fraud and other risks uh, up front. And so we're looking to see how that's being implemented across the government. Uh, so it's it's very important. Uh, but the part of the culture of the government is uh, more people in the agencies feel they get into more difficulty by not paying somebody than time <laughs> than they do from paying people that may not should have been paid right and uh, there's too much pay and chase so i'm trying to change that systematically but that's a hard cultural norm to change so um your call to action has been getting some uh reactions from our membership just a couple of questions how do we find out about opportunities at the gao uh, well, we have our website, GAO.gov, www.gao.gov, where we list opportunities on the website. Uh, but I would also encourage any of you who are interested uh, to send me uh, your your resumes, and I'd be happy to talk to you not only about GAO, but opportunities elsewhere in the government. 
you know, I deal with a lot of the, you know, on a regular basis, uh, you know, the uh, government leaders and departments and agencies and uh, often ask for, you know, potential, uh, you know, candidates for different jobs. And uh, so just send it to me at GAO. That's uh, dodarog at gao.gov. And there's also USA Jobs, uh, which is the government-wide listing of job openings. Great. Um, Back to the uh, concept of fraud. Um, One member asks, um, where have you identified the greatest areas of fraud? Uh, Is Medicare, is it Medicare, Medicaid number one? What other federal programs are the highest in fraud risk? Yeah, there's there's fraud risk uh, throughout the government. Uh, and there's no one quantifiable number uh, of, of that areas. And all the improper payments I mentioned earlier are not fraud. Uh, the fraud, by definition, is an improper payment, but not all those payments are fraud payments. But it, it's, it's where the greatest amount of money is. And, you know, 20, uh, over 25% of the entire uh, federal government's budget is health care costs now. You know, in 1965, mm-hmm. before Medicare, less than 1% of the federal government's budget was for health care. And right. health care costs are, are the fastest growing part of the federal government um, for two reasons. One is the aging of our population, you know, or and uh, the, the fact that, I mean, the good part is, is that we're living longer and having longer lives, um, but uh, it's hitting uh, our financial, our, our financing arrangements for Social Security and Medicare are outdated because they're both based on the fact that you would have people working, paying in payroll taxes in order to support uh, retirees. And that worked when you had 10 five even retirees per uh, or uh, people working per retiree we're almost the two two to one two people yeah. working for every or, uh, you know retiree and so the ratio is not in our benefit going forward so they're going to have to change and then, but there's fraud in in some of the defense areas there's fraud in unemployment insurance right now has been a big area Mm-hmm. Uh, where there's fraud concerns right now uh, with these pandemic uh, programs. And so, uh, unfortunately, it's uh, it's endemic uh, in a lot of activities, and we're trying to, to root that out and minimize it as much as possible. We have another question. It's a very specific question from uh – a member uh there the recent headline regarding government audits has been that the defense department remains the only u.s government agency that has yet to pass an audit can you provide your insight on why that that is and if there are any explanation of why that is the case yes Uh, well i've been working on this as i mentioned earlier since the act was passed back in 1990. Uh, initially there was a lot of resistance at the defense department the first requirement for government-wide financial, or excuse me, for financial audits of all 24 major departments and agencies was 1996. In that year, six of the 24 major departments and agencies were able to get a clean audit. The last few years, it's been 22 of 24. And that, and so we've worked over the years, including IRS, who now gets a clean audit, not only for its own expenditures, but for the trillions of dollars in revenue collection as well. And all the audit the public debt. Uh, and so now DOD, and this, one of the other agencies this past year was SBA, unfortunately, uh, due to the emergency loan programs, they weren't able to provide adequate support. Previously, they had had clean opinions. Um, but at DOD, there was a lot of resistance initially. Now, you have a huge enterprise activity over right. there that's very decentralized. You know, each of the services have their system. There are systems within each service. You have uh, different functions. But first, there was a lot of resistance. Then, a few years ago, 
uh, Congress began getting more engaged. And recently, there's even more pressure for them to get a financial audit now. The past few years, the last three years, they have undergone a DOD-wide uh, audit for the first time. They have a good system now to have the auditors. Once they decide they're in a disclaimer mode, but is to point out areas that need to be fixed. They're starting to correct their problems. About 20, uh, some 25 or so percent of the weaknesses identified have been fixed. And they're moving forward and tracking that and making a plan. Uh, I just had a meeting uh, this uh, week with the new Secretary of Defense. I emphasized the importance of continuing to give priority to the financial audit. Uh, and they recognize that and are working on it. But you just have an enterprise that operated for decades without good systems. I mean, you could imagine if you walked into your company right now and you didn't have good systems in place and hadn't been having the rigor of preparing financial statements and having audits done as a, as a routine matter over time and then have to start that from scratch. Well, in defense, it's, you know, it's just an enormous enterprise, but we're making progress. There are parts of defense that they can get a clean audit uh, opinion, none of the major services yet, but they're making headway. So I'm hopeful uh, I was hoping by the time my term was up in 2025 that I could give a clean opinion on the government's financial uh, statements, and DOD is the critical path there. Uh, so we'll see how far we can get. Well, uh, I'm afraid that's all our time. I want to really thank you. It's been very, uh, we still have tons of questions, but um, we'll have to leave it to next time. But I want to thank you for taking so much time with us and being so specific and so thoughtful with your answers. Thank you very much, Controller. Uh, it's been my pleasure to be with all of you. I hope uh, you and your families stay well and healthy and uh, take care. Bye-bye.